Hello and welcome to the Two High Bow, the <laughs> podcast where we gallivant around Rome and urinate in public. I'm Jonathan, and with me as always is my co-host Douglas. How are you, Shit. Douglas? I'm good, thank you, Jonathan. How are you? <laughs> I'm so good. If this is your first time tuning into the Two Five O, we've taken a snapshot of IMDb's top 250 movies of all time as of January 2020, and we'll be watching them from number 250 through to number one. In this podcast, we discuss our opinions, our thoughts, and our reactions to the movies within. Today's movie, number 100, ah! Bicycle Thieves. Antonio is an unemployed man in post-World War II Italy. He finds a job putting up posters, the only requirement being that he must have a bicycle. When Antonio's bike is stolen- <laughs> Guess how that worked out for him. When Antonio's bike is stolen, he and his son Bruno are forced to try and track down the thieves and retrieve his means of work. There are many fingers in this pie, Douglas. <laughs> In this Italian pizza pie. Pizza pie, yes. It was directed, thankfully, only by one person, Vittorio mm-hmm. De Sica, who's known for Umberto D, Shoeshine, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Douglas, are those three films or two? No, it's it's another one of those. It's, it's one Is that film. one film? Yep. Called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Okay. Well, the commas really threw me for a yeah, fucking really loop. Yeah, really fuck you there. I know. And quite a tight, you know- Small writing team of nine people. <laughs> well, technically only seven. Te- oh, but I was say, yeah, but- the original story was written by Cesare Zavattini. The novel was written by Luigi Bartolini. And then the screenplay was written by Areste Biancoli, Suze Cecchi D'Amico, Vittorio De Sica, Adolfi Franchi. Gerardo, Gerardi, Gerardo, Guerreri, and Cesare Zavattini, Douglas. I'll bet they're all lovely people, and I'll bet they all had a lot to contribute. I bet that writing room would have been fucking hell. Just imagining that many- Neither Jonathan nor myself have watched Bicycle Thieves before. It is my first experience with Italian neorealism, Jonathan. Does that mean new realism? Does it? Yes. Ah. Why, yes, Jonathan, it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> oh, well, let me tell you. Have I got a fact I'm, for well, you? I've been dying to tell you about this neo-realism. <laughs> uh, dope uh, film. I Yeah, yeah. I went into it not convinced, and then I came out of it. Hmm. First and foremost, mm. I don't get why there are seven screenwriters on this script. For an hour and a half worth of and film. It's, and for an hour and a half film, it is pretty thin, especially script-wise. Yeah. Which is not a problem. That's fine. I just don't, I just don't get. Th- yeah. Like, what were they doing? Like, is it- do you think maybe it's, like, I contributed, like, a sentence or, like, a word and then, like, you got to credit? You know what I mean? All that's going through my head is, like, extremely dense Italian stereotype. There's just seven people around a table. There's, like, fiddle music playing. (laughs) Everyone's dipping bread in olive oil. And they're all holding their right hand up in the little cone shape. And just yelling at each other. Mama fucking beer. And, <laughs> and that's why they needed seven people to actually get a screenplay written. In reality, no idea. <laughs> oh my god. 
Yeah, I I couldn't tell you. Uh, even from I <laughs> I tried to do a little bit of digging and see whether anything would come of light, but no, it's just there's inexplicably seven people who uh, contributed to this film. But I I completely agree with your sentiment of going into it with. I didn't necessarily have low expectations, but it was a film where I just didn't really know what I was going to get out of it until mm. I got to the other end of it. And then I was like, okay, that was interesting in a good way. What, like, what's going on under the surface of all of that? You know, like what, what was really trying to be said by the, the whole piece? And I think understanding and doing some research into- Italian neorealism has been really cool. Mm. Very appreciative of what fucking post-World War II Italy looked and sounded and felt and like as far as experience goes. It's didn't look all that slapdash, all that- uh, Well, it look, the, the film looks great, but as far as circumstance of living, not, not a good time. Mm. Absolutely. What other films have you had that have been sort of, not biographical, but, like, historical, almost? Come like, and see. Ba- Battle of Algiers was very big for just, like, giving, like, a very- I guess, yeah, Come and See is a good one as well, but Come and See is, well, I guess- It's still, I guess it's, it's, still it, it's a real-world circumstance, but fictional circumstance kind of thrust into the middle of it. Yeah. Mm. But- I don't know what- I don't know why I didn't associate Come and See with that in the same way. I feel like- Battle of Algiers feels very real, raw, and like undramatized. Yeah, and I think maybe the the sort of desperation and all that that's kind of key to come and see feels more dramatized because it is yeah. like a war thing and it's about all the stuff that goes on. Whereas this is sort of just like a dude really, really going through it, and the because, yeah, backdrop is true, 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 true. Uh, it's two different- uh, If Come and See were the action, then Bicycle Thieves is the aftermath, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Bicycle Thieves is set in a post-war scenario. Come and See is set in a during-war scenario. Same mm. of um, Battle of Algiers. It's in a- you're, uh, you're in conflict. Bicycle Thieves is about- the aftermath of conflict and the what remnants are left behind, which I think is very interesting. And I I really like the notion of Italian neorealism just kind of being- They could have, and I'm sure those films existed, but they could have very easily gone along the optimism kind of a route, you know, like escapism and that kind of thing. And I'm sure there was an avenue of cinema that was that. But for this period of Italian cinema to be what is most renowned now is this movement where a bunch of Italian filmmakers were obviously having a bit of a fucking shitty time when Mm -hmm. let's pose a mirror to ourselves and go, we are all in this together for, you know, uh, whether we like it or not, we're all living a relatively um, poverty-stricken, shitty time of life, and our quality of life is a bit shit. But there's still, I think, even within Bicycle Thieves, there are still kind of glimmers of hope and uh, kind of 
silver linings where there's there's a sense of common understanding that it's you know my plight is no worse than someone else's plight because I would have done the same thing had I been in their shoes and understood their plight, if that makes any sense. Mm. Something about Bicycle Thieves is that it was filmed in the thick of it. Like, yeah. it is more or less a film about the- mo- That's why it's neorealism. Like, this yeah. is what we are currently experiencing. Yeah. And we are it's presenting present. a yeah. somewhat dramatized version of our current predicament on theatre- on 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 film, Douglas, to yeah. theatre. Yeah. Whereas, like, Come and Say came out in the- in 85. I think Battle of Algiers was a fair bit after as well. Actually, no, yeah. not that far after. So, maybe- maybe this is why it feels that way. Like, it- it's the kind of thing, like- It's so on the pulse. Like, the idea of recording a film about, like, you know, the- the rubble of warfare and stuff, you know, using that as a backdrop for a dramatic thing on the actual rubble of actual warfare that we're actually yeah. talking about. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. If you were to go to Rome and try and find, you know, I want to go to the bit in Bicycle Thieves where there was that, you know, br- no, you can't do that. It's literally what- is presented as far as setting goes of Rome in this film is, yeah, it's very much, as you said, it's, yeah, got that real kind of presence to it. Yeah. And that is represented in all of the actors being quite amateur. I think they were all of them were amateur The actors in the film were all amateurs, yeah. Which is another um, <clears throat> trait of neorealism as well, is that they don't mm-hmm. use professional actors. They use uh, people who, yeah, have never And this is maybe before. spoiling a bit, of, a bit of your trivia, but the lead actor whose whole film plot is about being fucked up and looking for work so he can support his family, after the film was finished, was actually fucked up and looking for work to support his family because- they were still, ba- I think, you know, the, f- well, the film is, yeah, the film was based <laughs> in the current year in Italy, 1945, like, when did, when did World War II end again? 42? 42 44? or 43, I'm pretty sure. 40, oh, 45. Whoa, holy shit. Fuck me, that, that's, that is raw. Could not be any that's more absurd. on the pulse, even if you tried. Yeah, I'm not sure when the fall of, Italian fascism was because it may have been a little before the end of World War Two officially mm. because like I think really really showing my lack of knowledge here but um World War Two like I know that Japan was one of the last big holdouts yeah and that's why America went and did that fun and totally <laughs> totally reasonable thing awesome that they did thing that they did yeah. Just, uh, just the coolest. Who's excited to watch Oppenheimer, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, Oppenheimer enjoyers in the in the? I want to put it, f- uh, put it uh, explicitly on the podcast that I think America nuking Japan is one of the worst terrorist yes. acts uh, yeah, yeah. in history. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about Oppenheimer, sorry, very quickly, I've already booked my tickets. I'm spending a day at the cinema. I'm watching Barbie. 
Are you doing a Barbenheimer? Yeah, I'm doing a Barbenheimer. Which order? Um, Which order? I have been tossing up, but I decided I'm doing Barbie and then I'm doing Oppenheimer. Ooh, risky. I know, I know. I want to start, I wanted to start like Sunshine and Daisies. I want to like go in and like (laughs) scoff a whole fuck ton of like candy and shit. And I want to get out of Barbie, smoke a cigarette. And then go and watch <laughs> Oppenheimer. <laughs> and just- And what's your snack for Oppenheimer, Douglas? Uh- Cigarettes. Dry cynicism and- uh, More cigarettes. Just yeah, eating yeah, the just, cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, I'm just- Yeah, yeah, chewing on cigarettes. <laughs> you seen that- You seen that, uh, that TV spot? I-, I oh, It's got to be pretty old now. Where the guy is doing physical magic and he's putting, like, m- multiple cigarettes in his mouth. Yeah. And then he, like- He's got, like, four or five lit cigarettes, and he goes, like, whoop, and then, like, all the cigarettes, like, disappear somewhere into his throat. And he lights four more, and he goes, whoop, and and then he will, like, spit them all out. Yeah. And they're all still lit. They're all lit. Yeah. That's you and Oppenheimer. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the movie, I'm, like, spitting out cigarettes like a sprinkler. (laughs) We (laughs) We may have mentioned this on the podcast, but friend of the podcast, Ash and I- uh, also probably doing a Barbenheimer day. You're doing a Barbenheimer? And I nice. think- I think we want to do the opposite because we Ooh. want Barbie to be a palate cleanser. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's Although fair enough. I, I suspect that Oppenheimer won't be that much of a downer. Chris Nolan doesn't really- I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating it to be a commentary on the period mm. and the time, but not necessarily a downer. I think, yeah, at, like, he's probably going to do some weird timey-wimey shit and- it's going to be more so, not necessarily thriller, but kind of- I think it's probably going to be, like, The Prestige, actually, as far as, like, comparison to other works. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be the closest to The Prestige. Have you seen The Prestige or no? I have not seen The Prestige. Ooh, that's coming up in the 2-5. Tell me about The Prestige, Douglas. I can't. I've got to know. I can't. Okay. I'm contractually obliged. <laughs> we didn't sign the same contract. I, I, you need to know. No, that. yeah, no, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, thieving bicycles. Yeah, sorry. I think you're. I don't want to spoil it too much, but mm. I think what we're so excited about with this film is that it is very raw and starts really slow. And I, I think you could still have that as a legitimate criticism of the film that it is very slow going, and that there's sort of like you can see why it's an hour and a half, and even with it being an hour and a half, there isn't really still heaps going on. Everything just kind of happens. Yeah. A lot of scenes are very drawn out. Like, them going through the the street market is, like, really long. And stuff that doesn't really contribute to anything. Like, it's not- Like, the film itself is trying to make a lot of commentary about the state of society at the time. But yeah. the, the the market doesn't really do that. There are other scenes that are more extended that do further in. And some of the stuff earlier on, yeah, I guess it's maybe, I don't know. So, so, yeah. I would almost argue that it's more so about the preservation of that period of time and having that on film. Because they go a lot of places. Like, mm. Antonio and Bruno, uh, Bruno the son, um, they both go to a bunch of different places around this post-war stricken uh rome and yeah to me it almost yeah it feels like it's vittorio is desperately trying to kind of retain what 
that experience was like right in the moment, right while the the iron was hot so that, yeah, it could be preserved for future generations almost. Which is yeah. very cool. And also uh, simultaneously act as a mirror to the right here, right now. Get people to go to the cinema and for them to go, oh, yeah, things are a little bit fucked at the moment, aren't they? But there's still, like, <laughs> as I said, there's still some very tiny little glimmers of hope and stuff throughout this film, which were quite nice. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily yeah. end well, I'm going to say that, but- <laughs> Is there much of a soundtrack? No. I think there was- Is there none? Well, I wouldn't say none, I don't think, but there is a composer that is credited, uh, Alessandro- Chicognini. Uh, apologies. Um, also the composer for Umberto D and Miracle in Milan, which is another Vittorio De Sica film. Nothing immediately springing to mind as far as soundtrack goes. Yeah, interesting. Which may just mean that we were being slack again, Douglas. But yeah, just not opening my ear mm. enough, I guess. Absolutely. But or well, on the counter on the counterpart, well, if it blended in well enough and we didn't take note of it, then it's a good score. <laughs> I think we do this every episode now. Yeah, we do. Yeah. It's like, well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I refuse to form an opinion. <laughs> this film is a little thin on the ground, so yes. yeah, yeah. I think I'm not too worried about us maybe having a bit of a shorter episode. And I yeah. think we might have a bit to talk about. After the spoiler siren, Douglas, when we are in the spoiler zone. Mm. Yeah. Maybe we do that, perhaps. Sure. Sure. Okay. Podcasts. Uh, Content warnings. Poverty. (laughs) Poverty, yeah. I think it's mostly fine besides- Yeah, it's pretty chill. It's- 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 Post-fascist Italy, so you can sort of make a lot of assumptions about that, but it's not really, like, there's not much in the way of, like, violence or, um, gross sexual anything. Mm. Uh, it's just a, like, it's just de- depicting a bit of a bummer time in general. Mm. And uh, I think if you're not fully steeled for that, then you're probably going to have a bit of a bummer time with it as well. It might break your heart a little bit, but- mm. Yeah. But otherwise, mm. it's probably okay. It's not too bad. I mean, it, 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 it's probably just not everyone's cup of tea in general. Like, I remember, I need to go back and watch Battle of Algiers, Battle for Algiers. Me too. Because- Now that we have the insight that we do of fucking, what, a hun- over 150 films, it's, uh, mm. we might form a bit of a different opinion. Who knows? Uh, but it was- that was a, a sort of a, a bit of a slog, hmm. and maybe a little- From memory. Oh. Maybe appreciate it a bit more. Hmm. Anyway, do you recommend this film, Douglas? Yes, I do. Uh, it's not like a- I was trying to explain it to my parents. I was like, it's not a race out of your seat and go watch kind of film for me, but I can also very much appreciate its place in history- the influence that Italian neorealism had as a movement on the mm. cinematic industry um, and just its place in history, uh, film history. I think it's it's definitely like put it on a watch list and then if you're like real like cinema buffy kind of person, 
put it on a watch list and then if it's like a rainy day or something and you just kind of want to bundle up with a film for a little bit, whack on Bicycle Thieves and see how you go. Um, it's honestly, yeah, it is a little bit of a bummer, but it it, it But just not as much as I was anticipating, you know? No, absolutely. Yeah. Even though it absolutely is, it just doesn't bum you out quite as much as you might yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just weird. this neat little <laughs> enclosed piece of history that, mm. like, feels really real. And the film is It'll giving melt your you a heart, story. I will say that. Like, this, this is a film and a story that will, like, y- even if you think you're a stone-cold motherfucker, it's- this film is- it should get you. Mmm. <laughs> it's giving you a story, and then it's sneaking in little sprinkles of- of of history, Douglas. Mm. Uh, Woven in. To learn about. Woven indeed. Well, we're gonna have a little spoiler noise, <laughs> and we are now in the spoiler zone. We will. Well, we might. Who knows? It's a. It's this for you to decide. We might maybe spoil. <laughs> Say the, the fucking word. My God. <laughs> After this point, but you know. Jesus. You're just going to have to find out. No, uh, uh, we absolutely are going to spoil the plot of the film. So, uh, yeah, well, I re- we recommend that you watch it. Like, give it a little hit. It yeah. is a, a little bit of a bummer, but, uh, definitely not as much as Battle of, Battle for Algiers. Of yeah. Algiers? For Algiers? I think Battle of. That was a real gnarly one to be episode three. Yeah, yeah, we you can really tell. Got you can tell in the deep end. episode three of the two five zero. You can hear in both of our voices like we were not maybe ready. A bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this whole podcast maybe, was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we started pretty sure with like La Puta. We were like, yeah, okay, like yeah, we got this, we got this, and then oh, <laughs> oh we've we've made. A tragic mistake. No, yeah, not the same. Um, I do I mean, want to yeah, like- quickly share a piece of information with you because I hesitate to share it uh, and then end things on a bummer note. Mm. Lamberto Maggiorani, who plays the lead role of um, Antonio, uh, was laid off from his job as a factory worker shortly after the film was complete. The factory required budget cuts and decided to fire Magurani because everyone assumed he was a millionaire movie star when he actually only made 600,000 lira, which is a little over 30,000 US dollars today, counting inflation. He pretty much spent the rest of his life as a bricklayer, desperately trying but failing to land more acting gigs. Even DeSica wouldn't rehire him. Eventually, he died poor, having never regained the success of his first role, and that is more depressing than the entire fucking film. Jesus, I knew it was bad. I knew it was that bad. Yeah, fucking hell. Which, yeah, like, poor, poor bro- boy. Brutal from Deseka's point of view, but I also, I understand because he's trying to. As soon as you've used someone in your piece, mm. they become known. They become an actor. They become, uh, yeah. They I have guess experience. For the particular type of neorealism. They're looking. He's looking for people who don't have that. He's looking for people completely unexperienced. They're devoid of any of that kind of attention, I guess, um, mm. that actors receive. Um, I guess so. And that 
regardless of how much you try and stop it or prevent it or change it, it will influence your interpretation of them, how you put yourself out as an actor. It's, yeah, it's all subconscious and you can't really Mm. get rid of it. So, yeah, from his POV, I get it. But sorry, you were saying. I was watching- the Annihilation special features, Douglas. Because let me tell you, I still love that movie. And I'd be very interested how you're about to fucking wig in Annihilation into this. Alex Garland <laughs> talks a lot about how he uses a lot of the same people repeatedly, uh-huh. not just actors, especially his. And I mean, this is fairly key with. Don't make that- don't make that face. This is a salient point, okay? Okay, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Um, Let him cook. Not just his actors, because I think Oscar Isaac is in that. Maybe someone else is in both that and Ex Machina, for example. Yes, Ex Machina. But, you know, he uses his cinematographers and special effects artists and, and, like, the whole chain down. He just prefers to use people that he's used already and already knows. And his whole intention with that is- you create this, like, lovely atmosphere where everyone's, like, friends and everyone knows each other. It's a community. And it makes the whole thing- Yeah, it makes the whole thing just run smoother because you're not- Like, I- it, it made me think about, as a director or a producer of a film, you have to have 300 fucking interviews and you don't know 90% of the people who are working for you- you, they got put on the project last week, and now you need to make a huge, expensive thing. And I'm like, I totally understand that now, like, why that's so key. And I understand why you wouldn't want to do that with neorealism, but it's, like, such a shame to- I think neorealism generally tends to use amateur actors. Like, I think that's a big it's, key part yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. Probably- it's a part of the, the whole- uh, movement, yeah. A lot of the under the line staff probably would have that same treatment where it would make sense to do so, but it does suck. And it's it's the whole point of the movement, I think. Though, like the what what Alex Garland is trying to do with Annihilation, and I think Wes Anderson sometimes does it. Nolan definitely does it. There's Scorsese definitely does it. There's directors and people who have their circles of people who they're like, I work with these people, I like these people because I've worked with them before. And, yeah, it's a community. It's a family of people who you know you work well with, you get along with, and creatively, most importantly, you see eye to eye on things. Mm. From what I understand of Italian neorealism now is that it's- that's not the point. The point isn't to make a community. It's the, the point isn't to not necessarily see eye to eye creatively on every single thing. The point is to wrangle together a bunch of people who are living this experience and get them to be completely unashamedly vulnerable and showcase what it's like to live that experience. Um. Mm. Yeah, and then in a a crew kind of a setting, I guess, it's, yeah, you're looking at people who, I think, as I said, the composer, Alessandro, he worked on another De Sica film, 
the cinematographer Carlo Mon- Montuori. Uh, from the looks of it, did some other stuff with Vittorio as well, but not some of his more quote unquote well known works. But yeah, it's it's a revolving door, I guess. Italian neorealism because it's trying to get that next person who is ready to be vulnerable, that next person who's willing to showcase what it's like to be in this state of being. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, and it's we've fine sort to of not like that. It's about- fine to not like that. I'm. I'm just saying that I don't think. That's oh, I the mean, point. yeah, I. I- I don't think I, I don't I don't dislike it. It's just uh It's a bummer. Alex Garland really, really painted this like lovely picture that like seemed so nice. <laughs> and, and you were like, why can't like, everyone have that? <laughs> why can't everyone just be cool? Um Anyway, we've sort of talked about the making of the film a lot and not much about the film. The film itself. itself. Yeah, true. I think you know, to dive into the end of the film because it's, like, the most strike, And it's the point where you're like, oh, no, okay, this film's pretty cool. Like, what an absolute gut punch. Like, the last, like, maybe 10 minutes Ugh. where you're, like, he's so- You can just tell how fucking desperate he is and how immediate- How how he's, like- I, I mean, I mean, the I don't think the film is making super deep. Well, you know, the film is definitely trying to make a comment on, like, cycles of poverty and people who are just on the edge has something that pushes them into the edge and then that pushes them down this line of like why would someone steal this bicycle from me and then you see like okay i see exactly why you know what 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 brings you to that point and before that i think yeah you know a film has to set itself out you know it has to Set its setting, and that's why the first bit of the film is so slow and not much happens. I guess it it, it it it's like it's like a really great ending with a fairly good film. I think when you get the to the end hour. of the film, the start of the film makes more sense because Vittorio. Uh, uh, Antonio emerges from this mass of people who are like all, you know, like they go all go up the staircase thing and they all eventually, you know, get pushed back and everything. And then Antonio kind of springs out from the masses and then we're like, oh, okay, this is our guy. As an audience, we're like, this is our guy. And throughout the film, he constantly fluctuates through these masses and stuff, right? It's sometimes he kind of blends in a little bit and then other times he starts to like come out again. But he's always amongst a mass of people. And at the end of the film, Mm. he's straight back into that mass of people again. You know, it's like a school of fish. And you're just plucking that one fish out and kind of like shaking it around a little bit and going, well, that's a bit fucked. And just tossing it straight back into the school of fish again. And I think Vittorio opens the lens to go, this isn't just happening to this Antonio. This is happening to- a much broader spectrum of people, all with very mm. different circumstances, but they are all living a- They all have a a thread that is intertwining amongst all of them, which is that they are all living in a very shit quality of life, um, mm. which I thought was really poignant. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's my take, anyway. I don't know. Because I there's didn't things think the like. It was slow. I thought it may have made sense in the end. So. <laughs> <Up> <laughs> you. Oh, it's not, that didn't, it's not that it didn't make sense. I just think that, like, the the end of it is is so good that you. You sort of. Like, even the, you know, the bit where he is shaking the dude down who. Was the guy who stole the bicycle, right? It was him, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I think so. Yeah. I think it's implied to be. Yeah. Um, that bit, and that's where the you one really where, like, feel like- all the like- neighbors all come out and then they start like going mm-hmm. like, fuck you, Antonio. Yeah. Cause the guy's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel faint. <laughs> Don't know if the dude is actually having a seizure or not. Whatever. Uh, it's, it's fine. For me, I'm like, I think he's putting it on. And then all of the neighbors are like, ah, fuck, why, why are you going to this guy for? And then he gets, he turns everyone back on Antonio again, which I think mm, is mm. what's, yeah. Like that, that's really good. And that really builds on, yeah, this, this desperation that Antonio is feeling. And before that, like this, this bicycle market scene is like interesting and it's probably more just a commentary on, the society, but it's not really- it doesn't really scream- We, we do live in a society. We do live in a society. Uh, it's not culture. I can't call it the culture, Douglas. That is the state of society in Italy in 1945, right? Don't get fucking smart with me. It's coming. It's coming. Don't worry about it. We're only, what, like 50 films yeah. away or something? It's coming. Yeah. It's- mm, But I just didn't really know if I was trying to say anything- the, the the bicycle market scene. I'm really stuck on the fucking bicycle yeah, market. Yeah, you really, really hung I up on it. I think the church, the church says something, but it it doesn't have heaps to say, and it's quite a protracted scene for basically just saying the church is supplying heaps of people with food, uh, because everyone's fucking poor. But but early on, like the the whole deal with them like selling the blankets to get the bike to get the job and everyone's excited and all that like that is sort of ties in quite well um sorry what's your what's your what's your counterpoint allow me to pose you this pose pose away does it need to mean anything i don't (laughs) here we go baby i fuck it i got some shit to talk about towards the end of the podcast i watched a video essay by thomas flight on uh it's- I forget- oh, shit, no, I do need to find out what it's called because I do want to source him correctly because it's a really good video essay. Um, it's called Why Do Movies Feel So Different Now is the name of the video. Uh, Thomas Flight is great. He's a fantastic little video essay guy who I just stumbled upon with this video, actually. Wow. And he talks about the ideas of modernism, postmodernism, and metamodernism. Not gonna get too fucking hard into all of that shit, but you're pointing at me. I think I watched this. I think I watched this really? video essay. I think I talked about it like three days, oh, three seriously? episodes ago. Whoa. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, the the one of the key takeaways for metamodernism, which everything everywhere all at once can kind of be applied to the idea of metamodernism, is a response to Postmodernism, where postmodernism kind of looks at everything in a very kind of nihilistic manner. This is very, like, watered down, very simplistic to how Thomas Flight describes it. So, I highly encourage you to go and watch his video if you're at all interested in it. But 
Postmodernism looks at things with a bit more of a nihilistic kind of a look. Metamodernism does that, but it also has- it manages to find its way back to a emotional core and find a way to get you to feel something. And yeah, everything everywhere all at once does that. If everything means nothing, then nothing means everything. It becomes- paradoxical and cyclical at that point and the idea of nihilism and how everything ever all at once approaches nihilism um is kind of culminates in one of the third act scenes which spoilers for everything ever all at once uh audrey has uh the the mother character has a very poignant scene with the daughter where they both kind of become accepting of the nihilistic nature of life and how Everything can feel like a bit of a multiverse and they just go, well, fuck it. Like, fuck everything. If everything does mean nothing, then I'm just going to enjoy what's here between you and I right here, right now, because that's all that really matters. If everything does mean nothing and it's all just going to go to shit, then I just want to enjoy what's here right now, which I don't know how I was supposed to be looping this back to Bicycle Thieves again, but (laughs) I, yeah, I just find that. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that neo-modernism- No, wait, neo- Realism. Realism. It fits into the general postmodern. Yeah. But it's it definitely is, not it's modernism, more raw than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's less about subversion, I think, as well. Postmodernism kind of really thrives in that uh, twisty-turny kind of, like, uh, things happen- with, uh, The Coen brothers are, like, one of the fucking hottest- postmodernism directors mm. there are. Fargo and No Country for Old Men are like two fucking hella postmodern films. But yeah, yeah, I can uh yeah, I think there'd be enough like fuck, we might be riling up some film critic buffs if we're be like, yeah, no, no Italian neorealism, yeah, that 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 works with postmodernism. We're about to get some fucking emails, my G. <laughs> and I look forward to it, Douglas. <laughs> Someone Throw actually sending us an email? Whoa. Incredible. Looks like we have so many emails. I'm talking yeah, about we do. It. Don't worry about it. Got all these. I just shun most of the emails. Letters. We just put them straight in the trash. No, we don't. Trash. It's 2023, Douglas. No one gets emails. Yeah, exactly. Except for my work Outlook account. <laughs> that gets far too many too emails. Many. <laughs> Stop Too many fucking emails. emails. Um, I guess separate to the story- it is also just super dope that the film is set in real, yeah, post-fascist Italy. Yeah, like uh, uh, of course that's what it's going to be with the genre of film and the story they're telling. But that is like a lovely setting that gives you a bit of historical for it to be real, for like the setting to mm. be real, for the people to be real and authentic. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, which is really cool. And I mean, that's, that's what I think both of us have gone out of this. Like, I think that the culmination of the story is stellar and just the time capsule it creates for the setting is what sort of heightens it. Yep. Because I think that there are, I, I, I mean, I still stand by this. There are parts of the film that are slow and unnecessary and whatever, whatever. But those, Two things in particular still bring it up to eh, 
good, a good two Michelin stars, I think. Yeah. Yep. I'd agree yeah. with that. The authenticity of the film. That's what, yeah. Absolutely. That's the, that's the authentic, secret source. About as authentic as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, genuinely. You're looking at me as if you have, like, a, a, a hot oh, point I, to drop. No, I was just going to say, I can't remember what your thoughts on the 400 blows were, but it's I'm getting this weird sense of deja vu that you mm. you thought very similarly of that film. It was very much like a- you were like, the vibe is good and the story's there, but there were just bits where you were just- you thought it was just a bit slow and kind of meandering and not a lot was happening. I will say that that sounds right. For as much as I'm bitching and whinging right now, I was very engaged by this film. Yeah. And I yeah. wasn't- Absolutely. Especially with it being short. Like that, once again, this always happens. When the film is short, you can commit so many sins <laughs> because you can just blaze on past and like, who gives a fuck? Like, uh, a, a film with slow bits that's an hour and a half is fine. A film yep. with slow bits that's two and a half hours- what are we doing here? <laughs> My days. I hope Nolan hasn't lost his knack for, for pacing because fuck me, isn't Oppenheimer mm. supposed to be like three hours long? Oh, classic. <laughs> I mean, I feel like films these days in general are like longer. Yeah. Just yeah. like I feel like the two hour feature is like sort of sort of dying it's a bit as lost. a concept. But also if it's if it's a two hour feature, it's a part one and then a part two is like around the corner. Hmm. You notice how films are doing that again? Dune Part 1, Mission Impossible Part 1. Mm. Mm. I had this conversation. This is barely related. But I had this conversation with a a good friend about Lord of the Rings, Douglas. And did you watch the extended editions or the- Of course I did. Theatrical. Okay. I've met your dad. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) This doesn't surprise. Same with me. I was. On, I didn't even know the I, theatrical ones existed. Yeah, I ha- I I still have only watched Return of the King in uh, the theatrical cut. Ooh. But and, and and I watched every like I watched all of them extended. But that's the only one I watched the theatrical cut of. And um, God fucking damn, like that does not feel like even like the extended edition doesn't feel meandering no. to me. I don't know how they do yeah. it. I'm re- I I I'm interested i, I want to see what our plan is with the lord of the rings whether i bite the bullet and watch the theatrical cut oh. of all three films <laughs> which is half the length i didn't yeah. re- like that's the thing yeah. i knew i was like the extended editions are four hours i just assumed the theatrical cuts were like three they're two it's ridiculous yeah. and i don't know where the i don't know what they cut <laughs> So like, much shit gets lost. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it feels so key to yeah. me, but I guess we'll find yeah. out. That was a that was an experience that I did not feel like was slow and meandering. And I mean, the Lord of the Rings is a big trilogy of books. There's plenty, plenty of book to Tolkien, transfer yeah. mm. to the to film. Mm. So I'm keen to see that. But I think generally, like. It's fine. Like the little, the new Little Mermaid that I keep fluffing on about. Yeah, that was two and a half hours. Mm. Crazy. But yeah, nah, that's that's absurd to me. The when you compare it to the original film, I'm like, why? Yeah, but it also that I mean that also that that's the thing. Like these films are getting longer, but they they generally don't feel unnecessary to me. I do enjoy as much as I and and my friends all know this in private. I talk about how 
I think movies are dumb. I hate movies. Um, but when I'm in the when I'm in the cinema, Douglas, um, you know what? I'm having a pretty Did good you, time. You watched? Um, sorry, we're pretty much like basically swerving completely away from Bicycle Thieves at this point. But um, you watched Top Gun Maverick in theaters, right? Yes, I did. I did, but not in a good theater. Oh, it's a <laughs> but so for those, I don't want to dox myself too hard, but there is a place near where I live that is a. Uh, it is not a cinema, you know. It's not like a Wallace or a Hoyt cinema. It is a more or less like a dance hall or like a performance hall, and they project onto the wall. Um, so it's a smaller screen for a big screen, and I think I think it's only four points, four point one surround or something like that. Oh, it might be a six, but it's not like your full like like that is that is always the thing that really gets me about going to the movies is like obviously the image is good, but the sound you cannot emulate yeah. that at home yeah. without spending vast sums of money whereas a big tv or a large screen that you sit very close to <laughs> is much easier to do right um so that in particular whereas yes this was like not the flashiest experience but i did still very much enjoy and that uh, i watched dune there as uh, well yep. dune. dune i watched dune, dune. there as well and it does, I mean, it does the trick. Yeah. It is better than watching it at yeah. home. Sorry, what was your question oh, no, about no, no. Top Gun Maverick? Because uh, you, were, you were talking about how when you're in the theatre, you, you really do, you find a sense of uh, connection. I'm loving it. More so than you might when you're watching it at home, right? Which I think if you were mm. to look at, I tag all of my letterbox, more on letterbox at the end of the podcast. No. Oh. I tag all of my letterbox reviews, whether I watch them at home or whether I watch them on my couch. And the difference in ratings is astronomical. Interesting. As far as uh, for most of the time, the films that I watch in the cinema are films that I genuinely really want to go out and see anyway. So then when I rewatch them on my couch at home, I'm still like, yeah, I vibe that. But it's nowhere near that same giddy feeling that you have when you're in the theater and you're watching it on this gigantic screen the fucking speakers are all booming um yeah it it doesn't quite have that same secret source i guess but yeah i wanted to make comment on top gun maverick in particular because it's one of those films where the general buzz around it was Oh, they just don't make them like that anymore. You know, it's like, oh, talk, no one makes films like this anymore, which is to a degree true. But it's because it's it's a modernist film in that it's got Tom Cruise against the fucking Star Spangled Banner going, you're going to be OK, kid. And like all that kind of like near kitsch uh, panache that modernist films mm. have. Where it's very, it's by the books. There's no, there's no twist. There's no turn. We don't make them like the, that anymore because as a society, we grew up a little a, bit. No, no, no. As a society, we grew up on postmodernism and we grew up on liking that because we like a twist and we got bored of modernism, which was by the books, mm. good guy beats bad guy and then has a Hollywood ending. 
we got bored of that because we were like, that doesn't look like what our reality is right now. So, when we got postmodernism and it was all about like, yeah, like, uh, everything seems fine, but then whoa, there's a twist and then you're like, oh, that's not what I was expecting to happen. This isn't my Hollywood ending. <laughs> I'm scared. And then we were like, yeah, we're getting that for a little bit. And then eventually the new expectation became that we were expecting the twist. So then we were like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit fucking over, you know, twists and postmodernism and all this horseshit now. And so now- we're swinging over into, like, metamodernism, which is what Everything Everywhere All at Once was the master of doing in setting up its expectations, giving you this whole multiverse thing, but then subverting it, the whole fucking thing, subverting the whole fucking film at the end of the film and going, like, no, fuck you. Like, if everything is nothing, then nothing is everything, and we just need to accept that we love each other right here, right now. Bye-bye. And you're like- very jazzed on this video essay. It's great. I learned so much and it's genuinely changed how I think about film. Like, at least, like, modern film right now, it's really shifted how I think about screenplays and stuff and how Mm. it genuinely- We are not making films in that modernist kind of sphere- Not to say that we don't like them and we don't need them because God knows we need them. We need those films like Top Gun Maverick. But there's this fixation that we have at the moment where we're fucking- We want the twist, but we also don't want the twist. We want the twist, but we want the twist to end in like a nice way where we're like, everything is like relatively okay at the end because shit right now (laughs) is not very okay. (laughs) Um, So- (laughs) Yo, if Barbie is about to bust out the goddamn gate and be like a med- meta-modern film, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. I'm going to, like, bow down at the house of worship that is Greta Gerwig and just <laughs> come in my pants. But um, thank you for uh, listening to my TED Talk on uh, very uh, blasé film theory. Mmm. Blase-tastic. Well, Douglas, now that you've given us something nice and blase, could you perhaps give us some trivia? I was going to do our normal thing where I- Well, do you, do you have a shining light from this movie? Oh, where um, the we dad's like- line. He has this kind of- When Antonio has this like kind of near nihilist moment where he's like, oh, it's all just going to go to shit anyway. Like, I'm not going to get the bike back. We're basically going to die. And he's like, you want to get a pizza? And then the kid's like, he like nods. And then Antonio's like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go get a pizza. We're all going to go. It's fucking, we're all going to die anyway. So like, we're both going to die. So uh, we'll just get a pizza. Who gives a shit? <laughs> get a pizza. I enjoy the story around the, I don't, you've pre-read the trivia, right? Not too much of it. Okay, there is the scene where Bruno fucking- They're chasing this guy and Bruno's like, I'm going to go off and take a piss and pisses on the Mm -hmm. wall. And that got cut by the American- Classification board, board. They're like, we can't have a child- Pissing. Pulling his penis out in in the movie. And the fucking uproar- from the Italian, like, film fans about this. They're like, you cannot- You cannot gut this masterpiece. (laughs) 
the penis. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Which was incredible. Wow. Like, just like- not only be like watching it and being like, "Whoa, that was That's weird!" Yeah, yeah. How we just put just, that in there, but like, not then knowing that like, was an uproar oh, this was it. something. This was this was yeah. huge. People were pissed. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, holy shit! Wow. Beautiful, well, I won't, I won't uh, give too much trivia because it's already been a, a bit of a long episode. But I'll give you the um the spark yeah, I don't know how we I don't know how we fucking managed yeah. that given uh, I, I batted on about a given how it felt like we had really given that it felt like we it felt like we had fucking nothing to talk about I still about. feel like we didn't have all that much to talk about I just batted on about a weird bunch of film theory shit that lasted for probably about 20 minutes so it's fine um the movie director Sergio Leone worked as an assistant to Vittorio De Sica during the filming of this movie he also makes a short appearance as one of the priests that are standing next to Bruno and Antonio during the rainstorm. He must, uh, during the rainstorm. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wild. That's fucking yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm, I was going to say makes sense towards his films, I guess, to a degree. And like the kind of, he, he's more on a like suspense of disbelief and everything. Like it's all Western Rudy Tootie Shooty kind of vibe. Um, which is mm. uh, almost counterintuitive to the whole neorealism thing. Mm. Just regular modernism. Yeah. It's very classical yeah. by the modernism. books modernism. Yeah, which oh, a lot of Westerns tend to be, tend to be relatively uh, modernist because it's like ha- good guy, bad guy has motive, bad guy die, good guy win. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. Vittorio De Sica still hadn't found the ideal actor to play Bruno when filming began. It was while he was shooting the scene in which Antonio searches for his friend who can help him locate the bike that fate intervened. Quote, I was telling Magarini something. This is Vittorio De Sica. When I turned around in annoyance at the onlookers who were crowding me and saw an odd looking child with a round face and a big funny nose and wonderful lively eyes. Saint Gennaro has sent him to me, I thought. It was proof of the fact that everything was turning out right. End quote. And so, little Enzo Staiola was hired on the spot to play Bruno. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to just- <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. Be shooting your film, turn around and go, yeah, there's my other lead actor. Oh, there he yeah, is. Okay, get on Although, that is a very neo-realist yeah, yeah, yeah. approach. Move. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't cast this character mm. yet, but fuck it. Let's just get filming and we'll cast him later. I'll just be- I'll, I'll cover my eyes- and I'll- you put a bunch of Italians around me, I'll spin around in a circle, and then tell me to stop, and then whoever I land on, they get- they get to play it. <laughs> oh. uh, Lamberto Magherini was very shy and embarrassed throughout the shooting, as he had no actor training, or would often become anxious when he couldn't do what Vittorio- Vittorio wanted him to do. The director, however, did not coddle him, because he knew Magherini's real anxiety and nervousness before the camera- would work well for his on-screen character. De Sica would later praise Maggie Rainey, saying, quote, The way he moved, the way he sat down, his gestures with his hands hardened from work, the hands of a working man, not of an actor. I made him promise that after the film, he would forget the cinema and would go back to his job, end quote. But during the filming, De Sica would still send a black limousine to pick Maggie Rainey up and bring him to the day's location. <laughs> How much money did this director have if they were, like, swinging limousines yeah, around? Yeah, yeah. Swinging a limousine mm. around a fucking war-stricken robe. Isn't that, like, 
Yeah, for real. Literally, literally the end of World War II. Wild. Crazy to think about. Um, Anyway, yeah, those Mm. are just a couple of the bits that I um, found to be rather interesting. There are a couple of other uh, spicy little tidbits on there that I I encourage you to look if you're at all curious. But you you can go find them yourself. There is a lot of interesting (laughs) stuff about this film. If you enjoyed this episode of the 250, we put out new episodes <laughs> weekly. Tuesday midnight, Australian is the standard time, which comes out to Monday afternoons in Europe and Monday mornings in America. Douglas, where can people go if they want more information on the podcast? If you want more info on the podcast, you can go to www.250.com. That's the name of the podcast.com. Uh, we have a wonderful list of IMDb's top 250 films as of January 2020 on the homepage. Uh, there's uh, all, uh, obviously, in the order. You can look at the poster and you can click on one and then you can listen to it right there on the homepage because Jonathan's a coding wizard. Um, there's a couple of links wow. on the uh, website as well. There's a link to check us out on Instagram, which is at 250pod. It's the best way to keep uh, up to date with everything that is happening 250 related. You get to uh, get a little sneak peek of a funny bit that's coming up in the upcoming episode. Uh, and you can see what's coming up as well. And you can dra- drop us a DM on there as well if you're uh, looking to give us some feedback on our shitty applications of film theory. You can do it there. Or you can also do it, again, from the top of the www.250.com website. You can drop us an email. There's a link straight to our email, so you can just go right fucking to it. Like, no, it'll just- You click on that, it will open up your mailing application, and you can write your angry uh, email to mail at 250.com. Uh, and then there's a link to listen to us on Spotify, but we're also, also available wherever good podcasts are sold. The magic of uniform resource identifiers, Douglas, never fails to amaze. <laughs> Douglas is- <laughs> <laughs> that is a. You guys are really missing out, not getting any this particular with episode. This. Uh, Douglas and I both use Letterboxd, which is a movie tracking and reviewing website that we're great big fans of. My account on. I, 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 so I said that at the start of like when we started the podcast, I was like, we say that we're great big fans of this because I thought that it was like a, a cute little underground community thing. Letterboxd is unbearably huge. And a let me tell l- a you- A lot bigger than we were anticipating. Mm, anyway, we are still great big fans of it. My account on Letterboxd is- We are. Uber, that is U-U-U-P-A-H, and Douglas. My account is Ienzo Knight, I-E-N-Z-O-K-N-I-G-H-T, Ienzo Knight. You can look up Uber, Ienzo Knight, or 250 in the Letterboxd search engine, and you'll find us. We do written reviews of all the films that we talk about here on the 250, as well as anything else that we watch in our spare time. I did watch Nimona. I'm not sure whether I talked about it on last week's episode, but it was great. I really liked it. Um, it's it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm just super jazzed that there's an animated film out there that actually does representation right and shows how fucking far behind Pixar are in that game. Mm. Like, they are literally decades behind the fucking game when it comes to writing characters who are genuinely authentic- like, uh, the, I get giddy at the sensation that there is someone who is going to- A kid that is going to watch Nimona and see themselves in these characters and feel heard, validified, and, like, happy with themselves because they get to see these characters. Mm. Like, that's- Fuck. 
so, I'm just so happy about that. Um, and the animation is really good. And the voice acting is really good. I love Riz Ahmed. He's my G. I love that guy. I logged Jujutsu Kaisen on Letterboxd. It's not a movie, oh, obviously. Oh, this is not a, a series? This is, yeah, this, this is yeah, cheating. Yeah. You can't be doing it's this. It's not the film. You, it's not the film. You cannot, you cannot be doing this. There is a Jujutsu Kaisen. If I was logging all the fucking series that I was watching, Douglas, my letterbox would be much, much larger. Not all of them are available on Letterboxd, so I just whack it into Letterboxd to see whether it's there anyway, and I saw Jujutsu Kaisen was there, so I was like, I might as well just put it in there, because it's there. So I just did it. Fucking uh, pumping up your numbers, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Nanami Kento is just Lloyd Forger with extra steps. Changed my mind. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and then I rewatched Before Sunrise, because I was just feeling in a bit of a, um, a giddy little romantic mood, and, uh, my god, it's still so fucking cute. The- it's the scene that gets me every single time. They're riding in the tram and Ethan Hawke has got, like, his arm on the chair, like, around behind uh, Julie Delpy. And Julie Delpy's hair keeps on, like, coming and, like, covering her. It's almost like curtains. And there's this one bit where Ethan sees his chance to, like, brush the hair behind her ear. But- she looks at him right before she he goes to do it, and then he's kind of, like, caught in this, like, little middle point where his hand is just kind of, like, hanging out in, like, midair. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he, like, like brushes his hand through his hair, and they're like, oh, it's just so <laughs> authentic and cute and sweet, and it's just so beautiful. I love Before Sunrise. You should watch I, it again. Ah, it's, yeah. oh, it's so, so good. But, yeah, that's about it. Nice. I watched- Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Douglas. You motherfucker. I still have not watched the first film. You haven't seen Into the Spider-Verse <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, but you said you, Douglas. You, Douglas. Me? Said Me. that I did not need to watch it first. And you were correct. The no. yeah. The, yeah. Fir- the film catches That's you fine. up pretty quickly. And you yeah, I, I really love it. As someone who is trying their darndest- to be visually creative, it is definitely a work that gets your imagination going, which I sort of feel like a bad reason to recommend a film, but it's clear that there's so much uh, creativity going on there. Uh, I think it almost gets to a point where it's almost overstimulating. When I think back on my viewing experience of it, I did give it five stars. Mm. But I think back on that experience and I I get exhausted because there's just so much <laughs> to, like, try and unpack in the time that it gives you. You're like, I, I, I haven't been that exhausted since Mad Max Fury Road in theaters. Mm. That was that's that's that was one of the most exhausting experiences in cinema. Seconded by uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Did you find that as well, or it's a lot? It's a lot. I don't think I was. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really thought about it. It is a lot. Mm. It is a lot. Food for thought. There's just like so. There's 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 some visual creativity to it. The the obvious one. And I, I'm definitely not the only person to talk about this. Is all the scenes with Gwen and her father in their house and they just go full fucking jojo part four with the color grade like not the color grading but the the palettes and and just 
absolutely like the watercolors these and, shots oh. of Gwen's dad and you can feel just the him like shutting down like he's yeah. like overwhelmed and and it's just like these smears down his face like and and we we fluffed on about Puss in Boots and how crazy that was that a 3D film could be that creative but this is something else it's oh. it's awesome it's 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 a great time i think that i i sort of hate multiverses <laughs> i have- do you know why do you know why you hate them jonathan i can tell you why if you don't know why well uh, tell me why, Douglas. It's because you're living in one right fucking now. It's because Whoa! we feel like- No, it's because we feel like we're being presented with multiverses left, right, and center. It's because we got fucking phones that are giving us- uh, uh, We're being forced to process all this fucking different information at every fucking conjunction of our day that it feels like we're living in, like, all these different- universes simultaneously i think my counterpoint is that a i think everything everywhere all at once took the concept and made it very fun in a way that nothing is quite made quite as fun and b i don't want to watch dr strange i don't care (laughs) (laughs) and Uh, uh, and i think it's 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 like the 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 hero shot you know of like these are all our corporate assets you know like i this film it, it the i think the reason i give this film a pass is because it it clearly has so much creative love behind it and and creative people put like you could not have a disney film where the interaction between gwen and her dad are depicted that way you just couldn't it is too it is literal art you know, like, like not like obviously, but it, this is, this is this extreme abstraction of form into visual movement that is just, I've never seen anything like that. And you just fucking could not yeah. get it from a, a more corporate thing. And I think that's why I give that a pass because I see this nostalgia bait. Like, oh, isn't it wacky that there's all these Spider-Man? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, uh, you're yeah. lucky You're lucky yeah. that those scenes are choreographed really well because of the concept of, like, here's all these um, different Spider-Mans doesn't interest me in the slice. I did like the bit- the, This is not a spoiler. I liked when- What's his name? Childish Gambino? What's the, uh, what's the guy's actual name? Oh, Metro Boomin. Yeah. Where he's he's just there <laughs> in this like yeah. 3D film. Just rocks up. Yeah. But it's I, I should have really opened with like uh spoilers on the film, but whatever. I it, it just feels like it's made for like superhero film people to be like, Oh the thing, I recognize that and I'm like, Okay, <laughs> sure, fine. I'll be very interested to see what you think of the first film. If that's your interpretation mm. of, yeah this film mm. Mm. but it was still a great time and yeah yeah this is not a film but you've already talked about a show so i'm going to talk about a show i re-watched the band season one with my partner because season two just came out and we are almost all the way through God, season you're fucking two down bad for it hey 
let that uh, uh, TV I've watched recently, seasons of TV that I finished. Oh, God, here we go. This, the the most recent one before this Uh, was The Last of Us, which was fairly recent. Yes. But before that was Game of Thrones. (laughs) Like, I don't- I don't watch- I watch so much TV, watch two episodes, and I'm like, no, I'm not interested. Just like- A lot of a lot of TV has this fucking cheapness that just does not interest me in the slightest. The Last of Us was good, but it it was not great. It it did not give yeah. me the experience that, as much as I bitch about it, a lot of the films, the majority of the films in this podcast are a real new experience that somewhat, in one way. Or another changes your view on the world. You can or derive something, art, yeah, or yep. just a little something that you take with you throughout the day. And most of these things yep. are just like what, like, like Last of Us. I think I complained about this already. Between the and this is maybe an opinion, but between the show and the game, the game has this huge effect on like uh, this huge like focus on like the world is fucked, and you know that because wherever you go, there are a million fucking zombies everywhere. And the TV show has zombies in like three of the twelve episodes, or wherever it is. It's like a quarter of it, and then, and then it's just so things it's like, like that. And people versus people, and yeah. you just feel like, and I mean, that was a huge production, but you're just like, this just feels cheap. Like it just feels like there isn't enough that is really making it feel like a whole thing. The bear doesn't do that. Like the standard episode i think was episode 6 in the last season that one is a classic because it is an entire 23 minute episode that is shot in one take and the standard episode in season 2 i think might also be season 6 and the one it is the highest rated it has a i believe a 9.6 on imdb and TV shows, TV shows do get weird skews on IMDb, so you mm. know whatever. But it is. Uh, let me see. It will come up. It is yes, episode six. It is an hour long, and you don't really feel it until like it, most episodes are twenty six minutes. This episode is an hour long, and you don't realize until about forty minutes in. You're like, ha. Huh. <laughs> This this is long. (laughs) What's going on here? And they really pulled out all the fucking stops. It has Jamie Lee Curtis potentially doing the best performance of her fucking career. Wow. Gillian Jacobs, John Mulaney, Bob Odenkirk, Sarah Paulson. uh, Chris Wachowski is in there. John Bernthal is like a semi-regular character. Oh, I love John. um, But they just pull out. Like, wow. everywhere. And it, it's happening in, like, the, I, I think that season one was, like, really successful. And suddenly all these big actors wanted to be part of it. But, Jumping like, on it. It, it is it is mind-blowing. Um, mm. I, 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 I just don't feel in TV since maybe early Game of Thrones that characters have been written in a way- that feels so real. And it, and, and yeah. it's like, it does not feel like we're filling the time, which is what so much TV is. It is just like, you've come home from your job 
and you're sitting on the couch like a good little <laughs> corporate slave. <laughs> good little capitalist citizen. Yeah, yeah. And it really feels like an experience that is having the same effect on me that these films are having. I, 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 I fluff on about wow. this, but Shit. it is- Okay. You know what? Jonathan, you've done it. You finally <laughs> sold me. I'm going to go- I'm going to go watch this first season. And here's uh, the thing. Between now you and can next watch week, the first I am committing season. to that. You can watch the first season in four hours. Like- Yeah. They're short- This is the other thing. They're sh- I talked about this when I watched season one. They're short fucking episodes. You can just yep. blast straight through these motherfuckers. Uh, yeah. I- I- I'm, I'm having a great it. time and it is no wonder- that everyone is so fucking jazzed about this show. Like, it's making such a big deal. Yeah. So- It must be very um, exciting for you for it to to have the kind of, uh, I guess, impact that it's having. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no way. Holy shit. Okay. The guy who directed it, Christopher Stora, directed two of Bo Burnham's stand-up specials. Oh, he that's directed right. What and Make Happy. And Make mm. Happy is probably- uh, it's tough competition between inside, but I still really like Make Happy. That's got to be one of my favourite of Bo's, like, stand-up specials, so. And I really like the camera work in it, so. Mm. There you go. I, I mean, it's always hard for me to say whether, especially when it's not the two of us talking, whether something is truly good or if you- But, like, I'm not on Twitter, so- I don't get, like, wrapped up in the hype of shit like this. I feel like some people do. Like, I just- I really like this show. <laughs> Doug's is pointing. You said you're not on Twitter, but are you on threads? Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. I saw that shit come up. I got so fucking scared when I got that pop-up that was like, hey, do you want to get on threads? I was like, what if- No! No, what is it? Stop! No! I don't want it. Whatever it is, Elon, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Elon, it's Zuckerberg, but- Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, uh, Zuckerberg. I yeah, yeah. am- This is the thing, like, people around me are freaking out about Twitter, and, they're, you know, they're stressing out, and they're like, Twitter's going downhill, go to Mastodon, go to Blue Sky, go to Threads, and I'm like, there are all these things, and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't like Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why I, I would I like have, these other things? Bro, I genuinely have enough, like, mental capacity for one social media platform, and that's Instagram. And that's literally all my brain can do now. Like, Absolutely. I don't have TikTok. I don't have threads. I don't have Twitter. I don't have fucking Be Real. I don't have any of that shit. I just do Instagram now, and that's, like, that's my daily dosage of, like, I get to check in on the world, see what horrific shit is happening, see how happy all my friends are, and I get to put it down, and I get to look at my life and go, wow, I feel like <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> get to see all the fun my friends are having at, like, that bar that they said that they were going to take me to or whatever, but then, like, they went on their own without me, and then I'm like, wow, yeah. That's lit. You're really- you're, Douglas is really pulling out this trauma at uh, an hour it's and 21 minutes That into- didn't happen to me. That didn't happen to me. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, look, there are obviously elements to my enjoyment of the show, which is that it is a, a show about food. 
that is absolutely having an effect, but I don't think you're not going to enjoy those parts. Yeah, given given that like so many other people have enjoyed it as well, fucking not everyone could be a goddamn cook and enjoy this show. Sure. My favorite thing, and you need to keep this, uh, keep an eye out on this, uh, Douglas. The character Neil Fack in this show is played by Maddie Matheson, who is an actual celeb- a celebrity, an actual celebrity chef. Okay. And basically acts more or less exactly as he does in the show in real life. But his whole arc is he- in the show, he's just like a handyman- <laughs> And he's trying as hard as he fucking can to get a trial shift at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and it is stellar. It is uh, so that's good. That's a good bit. That's mm. a good bit. <laughs> no, it's um an absolute fucking killer show. I'm I uh, I'm having so much fun and that's where I'm leaving yeah, it. Yeah. The fact you're so jazzed about it. I haven't even been watching like any like anime right now. Like I think I still have an episode left of Skip and Loafer that I haven't finished. Uh, I started watching Trigon and haven't really picked that up again. Uh, I was really enjoying Girls Last Tour, but, um, I haven't finished that. And I'm two episodes away from finishing Samurai Champloo. Also, I haven't finished that. <laughs> God damn it. Um, I got no excuse. I will be honest. But, uh, there's just been the bear. And Splatoon, baby, that's right. Yeah, you've been hitting it hard. That's right. I got the four-star badge for the Splatana Wiper. <laughs> I got the four-star badge for the what is the RG Aerospray, the wow. MG Aerospray. That's right. I play the game a lot. <laughs> come, come at them. Absolutely. Um, hit me up on uh, Nintendo Switch Online. Uh, Upa, that's U U U P A H. And I'll fucking wipe the floor with your ass in a one-on-one. Throw the fuck down. How is this our longer- How is episode- This is bizarre. This is bizarre. I looked at my notes and I'm like- On Bicycle Thieves. How is this going to be one of our longest episodes of the 250 ever? Uh, uh, I'm going to have to do a lot of editing. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for listening to Good the 250. Good night, Tri-State area. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening here. to the 250. Thank you. So- if you got to this point, Thank you so much. Uh, go yeah, to Jesus. iTunes and give us a five-star review. <laughs> we will uh, catch you on the we flip side. I'm going to go watch. Oh. I'm not going to go watch No Minor. It's half past midnight. Yeah. Is that shit? Wait, hold up. It's a short movie. Is it on? How long? Is it like an hour and a half? It's on Netflix. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>